Hi folks, welcome back to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. This is Fred Reno, the host. I'm excited to share with you episode number 21 where I had the distinct pleasure to meet and interview Professor Tony Wolf, who is one of the living legends here in Virginia for the work and research he has done in wine growing. Tony is the professor and director of the Allison H. Smith Jr. Agricultural Research and Extension Center located just outside of Winchester, Virginia, which is part of the Virginia Tech University Horticultural Department. You're probably asking yourself, what does an extension service do? Well, I didn't know either, but I found out, and you will, in this interview. I must say that during many interviews with other podcast interviewees, Tony was mentioned quite often, to the point where many vendors said, where would we be without Tony Wolf? I learned quite a bit from this interview, and I know you will too. Take a listen. Tony, welcome to my podcast, and thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Fred, and I want to take a moment to just say thank you for having me on. You've got a distinguished list of guests who have gone ahead of me. It's nice to follow in their footsteps with this. And just by way of correction, this is one of actually a number of experiment stations operated by the university. I wouldn't want them to think that I'm overall director of the whole experiment station. Well, that's true. We're in Winchester today, folks, in Northern Virginia. Exactly. Well, as I like to start at the beginning, give me a little bit about your background and why you chose to pursue a career in viticulture. Yeah, that's a, it's a common question that I'm asked. I come from a family that uh, has nothing to do with farming or grape growing other than a, an arbor in the backyard. I was raised by uh, my father in particular, who is very much a horticulturist, and he was a scientist by career. He really exposed me to a lot of different things, including horticulture and grape growing and winemaking, and that was at a fairly early age. So as I moved into college, um, I went in the direction of plant sciences and, and horticulture. Actually, it had a little vineyard of my own. Well, a uh, very, very small vineyard, I should say, just 12 vines. But uh, I gravitated towards viticulture because of the, um, I, I think, because of the interest, the family interest in wines, again, just on a home basis. And, and then I really gravitated towards the science of it as well. I had the opportunity as an undergraduate to work on an experiment station for two summers, similar to where I'm working now. I was introduced to experimental field plot design and, and you know how a scientist uh, goes through asking questions about the kind of work, the, you know, the answers that we want uh, to derive from the projects. And I really, really thought this would be one way of getting into grape growing uh, and, and research at the same time. I didn't have land. You know, I had no means of really purchasing a vineyard. So taking the academic route gave me an opportunity to pursue an interest in research as well as you're not really you don't really go at it with the idea that I'm going to be an extension specialist, but that comes with it as well. So you, you do research to answer questions that are confronting the industry, but then you have to do something with those answers, and that's the right. extension part of what we do. So you chose to work, though, in Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic area as opposed to any other wine-growing region in the country. What drove that? Yeah, well, the first 18 years of my life were... Raised. I mean, I grew up about 20 miles from here, so the Mid-Atlantic is home to me. It was already, there was a, um, a feeling of familiarity there with what I would be getting into. I wanted to, I wanted to be in viticulture. 
you know, you, you sort of make a decision as you're, whether you're going to go to viticulture or enology, and I chose the plant science part of it. I like the viticulture part of it, although the, the winemaking is certainly of interest. And then as I looked around the country, yeah, I applied to graduate schools out west, but um, I was fortunate to be able to train here in the East Pennsylvania and then at Cornell University in New York. You know, sometimes decisions are made for you. I was two years into my Ph.D. program when the job opened up here in Virginia. Oh, wow, okay. So uh, my advisor told me about it. I applied and I interviewed and I thought, this looks like something that would be very interesting. I had sort of a, a peripheral understanding of what was going on in Virginia with the industry. This was, you know, this was in the early 80s. I looked at Virginia Tech, and I thought, my God, these people really know what they're doing. They're hiring a viticulturist. They're hiring an enologist, two different people. Bruce Auckland was hired at the, in fact, just a little bit earlier than me, said this uh, university is really putting, really putting something into the educational research program that's going to support this industry. There was also funding to work with here. There was what at the time was called the Wine Advisory Board. Um, it goes by a different name now, but uh, that was a, a board that uh, generated money from the sale of Virginia wine that could then support marketing and promotion, but also research uh, act activities. There weren't a lot of other states that were doing that. So it was, it was a confluence of a number of things. The job was open. Uh, I applied for it and, and was uh, accepted into it. Then I had to hurry my Ph.D. program a lot. I kind of shaved a year off of it, but my you know, advisor said it's probably going to be better for you to go ahead and get this job than to stay right. another year <laughs> with graduate schools. It worked out well in that regard. Well, that sounds uh, just everything came together at the right time and the right moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a little curious as you said something that made me think, and that was you mentioned Cornell University. Would you say that Cornell itself, as far as the East is concerned, is somewhat similar, at least in its embryonic stages, to what UC Davis became in California? I mean, I'd like to know a little bit about that component of Cornell. Yeah, well, they they weren't, the viticulture program was not as large as the UC Davis program, obviously, in terms of faculty members, but it was one of the few institutions in the U.S. that had uh, specifically a viticulture, is pomology and viticulture. Pomology is, uh, is the science of growing home fruit, apples and pears. It was actually a separate department, and so they had faculty that were involved as viticulturists, and plant physiologist, and I knew that I could get a good education there. Cornell had a you know, good name, still has a good name for itself as, a, as an academic institution. It, as far as on the East, yeah, it, it was and probably still is the premier viticulture program. They have a four-year teaching program in viticulture, which is unique. Certainly, you know, when you go further north into Canada, there's some big programs too, mm -hmm. but Cornell's... Well, that's interesting to know, because yeah. I was thinking about that as you were talking. Mm -hmm. so I'm sure my audience would like to know, explain what the extension service does for the industry <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what yeah. and how it utilizes the research and the areas and things that you do yeah. yourself. So let's let's break it down a little bit because it's many of your listeners are probably unclear actually where's the research, where's the extension and where's the teaching? Right. I tell people I work at Virginia Tech, the first question they ask is what do you teach? Because they have this impression as a professor is somebody that teaches in front of a class, and, and okay, well, we do that too. But so we're a land grant institution. We have all three missions research, extension, and, and instruction or teaching. The cooperative extension 
it's an old institution. It was actually congressionally mandated in 1914, so it's over 100 years old. Cooperative Extension services, including Virginia Cooperative Extension, have been around for quite a while. They're different things to different people. I was when I was a kid, I was in 4-H. Well, 4-H is part of Extension, but now I mean I'm in in in, in the area of called uh, agriculture and natural resources. That's the part of Cooperative Extension that I'm associated with. But um, I'm also part of the Virginia Ag Experiment Station, Agriculture Experiment Station. So I have a research and an extension appointment. So when I get a paycheck uh, at, at the end of the month, part of my pay is cooperative extension funding. Part of it is agriculture experiment station funding. Interesting. None of it is related to teaching, which is actually a different stream of, of money. But um, I, I sort of wander a little bit here and, and no, get fine. away from what you're asking. So I'm I'm is what. I'm considered a an extension specialist. I have statewide responsibilities in the area of viticulture, grape growing. We have other people here at the experiment station, at our research station, who have responsibilities as specialists for tree fruits, for entomology, fruit entomology, you know, insect uh, issues. Uh, we have pathologists here. All of us are specialists, so we have statewide responsibilities, and regional, and national, and global, you know, to the extent that we do that. The Cooperative Extension also has a, a, a baseline of support at the county and uh, municipal level as well. So when people talk about an extension agent, that's usually the local resource that somebody may use. As a homeowner, you can take in a, a, a problem like a disease you might have on your plants and get some help in identifying well, what they, that is. So I was wondering, so could a current winery vineyard owner or a prospective winery, can they just call you or the extension say hey listen i want you to take a look at this property or i yeah. need some help yeah. and and then you respond yeah actually that's a really good question it's one of the things that we encourage people to do particularly as they get in and explore the industry we encourage them to work with their local extension agents uh, they help a lot in terms of saying okay you have a site that is probably good for grape growing at least it's you know it's a decent site or maybe, no, you don't want to grow grapes here. It's down by a river. It's going to be a frost pocket. It's going to have winter injury. We'll, we'll maybe think about something else you can do with your property. The local extension agents are also really helpful with um, submission of samples, um, you know, disease samples that come in, for example, that can be submitted to the lab at, on campus at Virginia Tech to help identify what's going on. Uh, soil sampling, all of that stuff. Training for pesticide applicator certification, that's all done through the local offices. We don't do that here. People that know me uh, do routinely get in touch with me, email and phone calls, and I don't turn them away. You know, if they've got a problem that I can help with, I, I help them. But we really like to work with the local agents in that regard first. So to back up a little bit, so we have, uh, I have the role of being an extension specialist, and that's really dissemination of information and knowledge to the to the user. I think your broader question is also concerns the research that I do. Right. And so that's that's part of it. And they go ideally they're they're seamless. The research moves directly into the extension delivery of that information as well. So I again I have both responsibilities. There's another whole other question about how do you decide what to research and well, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that is a bit confusing to the wine public, and quite honestly to the wine trade to a large extent, is hybrids versus vinifera. Admittedly, I had very little 
understanding or exposure to hybrids in my career because mm-hmm. we spent the bulk of it in California. But having now moved to Virginia in the last couple of years, I've become really a big fan of, let's say, Sauvignon Blanc, personally, mm-hmm. for drinking. Mm-hmm. From your vantage point, talk a little bit about what the difference is so people understand between not just character of the grape, but growing a hybrid versus growing a vinifera here in Virginia. So that's, that's uh, I'd have to say when I first started here, the discussion about hybrids versus vinifera led to much more polarized discussions to the point of arguments than they do now. I think it's an accepted fact that we're going to have a mix of hybrids and, and vinifera in the state. And most people understand that and, and accept it for reasons that I'll, I'll go into. Again, if you take yourself back to the late 70s when this industry was really just becoming, getting started, there were people in the industry that felt very vehemently that this industry should be based only on vinifera. And, you know, the Vinifera Wine Growers Association, for example, was a, was a grower organization that Is that Carl Fleming? Our, De, our Deville, uh, Travel oh, Lawrence, Travel was, uh, Lawrence, yeah, was the original. I think one of the charter members of that society. But uh, but there were there were a whole group of people that were involved and still are involved. It, it goes under a different name now. And and there were other people in the in the east. Uh, Constantine Frank, you've probably heard yes. about in the Finger Lakes. He worked at Cornell for a while and and actually was a, a big proponent of of Cornell getting involved in in growing vinifera. But it took a while. I was the first graduate student, actually, to go through Cornell that actually worked with Vinifera grapes as far as my dissertation work. And that was in the 80s. So it took a while from the 50s when Constantine Frank was there to that point. The same thing in Virginia. We can see it's taken a while to gain acceptance, uh, for example, of, of hybrids. The problem with growing Vinifera, the fundamental or historically the biggest problem with Vinifera was their cold tenderness. They are easily injured by cold temperatures. And and again, if you think back on the kind of climate that we had in Virginia in the 80s and even into the 90s, we had historic low temperatures in January of 85, again in uh, February of 94, February of 96. It's like just within a 10-year period, three really bad freezes. Where, I mean, it basically takes scrapes back to either the snow level or the ground level or, or kills them outright if they weren't healed up. Um, with soil for winter protection. That was the big problem with vinifera, and people that looked at this rationally said, okay, if we can't uh, sustainably grow vinifera, then what are our our alternatives? And hybrids were a logical alternative, and still are. So things like, as you mentioned, Sable Blanc was uh, very important, Vidal Blanc, uh, increasingly Chambresin, and then some newer hybrids, including Traminet, Chardonnay. All of those are main players in our industry. Sable has kind of waned a little bit in popularity because there's some issues with it, but hybrids are and will continue to be important for the industry here. Well, I'm a big crew Beaujolais drinker, and I really have enjoyed some Chambresins that if they just take that little back edge off of them, mm-hmm. they really are close to a crew Beaujolais yeah. as far yeah. as their flavor profile and the character, and I'm like, wow, these are really interesting wines. The the really interesting footnote on hybrids is, is where we are now and where we'll be in another 10 years, 20 years, because hybrids mean different things to different people. When we think about Saval and Vidal, we're thinking about a, a genome that is 
let's say, proportionately vinifera and North American or Asian vinifera vita species. There's a mix there, and quite a bit of some of the riparian, repesters, and some of these other Berlandieri North American species of fruit quality come through. The, the, the newer hybrids that are being released today, and more out of the European breeding programs than out of the U.S. programs, are based primarily on vinifera. And they're hybrids in that they have a small component of the genome that is comprised of North American species of grapes. But the breeding programs now are, are taking a much more rifled approach to which genes they want to incorporate into this oh, new, that's new progeny. Uh, new progeny. It's, it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not genetically modified organisms, it's classical breeding, but there are ways of selecting the progeny in a way. I mean, it's, uh, there's marker-assisted breeding so that you know what genes you're looking for in the progeny that will confer disease resistance, for example. So you might have a thousand seedlings from across that you can very quickly go through and determine whether the genes for that powdery mildew resistance are in that progeny or not. If they're not, you throw it away. You don't grow it for three years. So this really accelerates the breeding program and the new hybrids that are coming out are at least 85% vinifera genome. So they, they continue to carry a lot of the desirable fruit quality and, and other horticultural traits, uh, but then they have this, this added disease resistance well, that as well. is fascinating. That yeah. portrays a really interesting future. Oh, yeah. In wine yeah. growing. I mean, yeah. that is fantastic. Yeah. I, I make the comment that what we're going to be growing in 2050 may not be here in Virginia at all right now. Do you, you know. do any of that type of research yourself here? No, I'm not really trained to do that. I'm, uh, I would fail miserably as a great <laughs> breeder. I don't have the patience. It, it doesn't really interest me. It's more of a, that's a long-term uh, project and, and proposal, and it, it really involves a, a, a larger critical mass of people involved in it than just one person. Where I am involved, though, is in the evaluation of those vines, and we need to be growing them here in Virginia. So that's what we do. We put in a planting last year with some of these new varieties. That's something that we have to do constantly because there's there's always new varieties coming on the scene, and you know they should be evaluated under our growing conditions here. I'm curious about something. I had just thought about this. Hybrids versus vinifera for a second. What is the crop load like? Will hybrids give you a... a a larger crop? Not or is necessarily. that just a farming practice? Yeah, not necessarily, but... but Of quality, you know. Yeah, there, there are some varieties like Vidal Blanc that I know some of our producers are doing a good job producing seven tons an acre with it. It's a, you know, it's a white variety. You're not really looking for necessarily a lot of concentration. You're not looking for, for depth of color or intensity of color in it because it's a white, white variety. And it has enough pronounced flavor that at that cropping level, you're not losing that. It's, it's still there. There are vinifera varieties which have the same tendency for overcropping. There's a variety called Mavedra, which I like, which does, I think, fairly well in Virginia. Very late bud burst, late ripening, but it, it produces this incredibly large crop. You really have to go in pretty pretty rigorously and, and drop the crop on it in order to have any quality with it at all. Well, I've become a big fan, speaking of grape varietal, a petite mansang. And as I understand it, you can grow 
four to five tons per acre and get really high quality wine. Yeah, uh, Petit Mansing is a variety that's sort of self-limiting in terms of the yield. It, it doesn't tend to overproduce like some varieties will. Yeah. That's the variety, and we we re- in fact we brought I brought Petit Mansing into Virginia back in the in the eighties from Cornell actually from the breeding program. It wasn't from the breeding program at Cornell, but they had it in their in their vineyard at uh, Cornell, but they had they had introduced it from repository in Bordeaux. Right. It comes from south of France, but Bordeaux had it, and they got it to Cornell. So we brought that into Virginia in the late 80s as part of the original variety planting that we had here. That same planting, we had, we had Chardonnay as a hybrid. We had Vidal as a benchmark variety. Uh, we had uh, Tanat came out of that, Petit Mansang, we had Viognier in that as well, uh, but the industry had already gotten a jump on Viognier. There were some other ones that we had. Some did well, some did not do as well, but that's why you do variety evaluations, you mm-hmm. know, to see how they're going to fare. You mentioned to not, now that is pretty susceptible to frost and cold, though, is it not? It, it's a cold, tender variety, yeah, and that's the, that's the problem with a lot of varieties, Nebbiolo, Mavedra. A lot of those varieties, particularly those that come from more southern parts of Europe, are are fairly cold tender. I had a vintner say to me early on when I first moved here, and I'd love your opinion on this, he said, Fred, it's entirely possible that the best vineyards in Virginia haven't even been planted yet. That resonated with me. I thought about that, and then, of course, he gravitated towards, and, and, I, and I have a lot of people talk about Shenandoah Valley has a lot of potential long term because it's drier, I guess, and yeah. cooler in the yeah. summer. What yeah. do you think about that comment about vineyard itself? If we divorce viticulture from the rest of wine sales and everything, you know, then I think the Shenandoah Valley and the, uh, some of the higher elevations on the Blue Ridge could be very, very good sites for grape growing. I know you've talked to some people already who have explained, you know, the value of going higher in elevation from a from a daytime temperature standpoint. Those steeper slopes, thinner soils tend to have less water holding capacity as well. It still may rain there a lot, but they tend to drain faster and, and lose some of that water more rapidly than those colluvial soils, you know, at the bottom of the hill. There's some value in doing that. You know, if you're operating a winery as well, as long as you can get people to come to that winery, that's going to be part of the part, part of the game here, though, as well. Oh, I see. So they need to have that direct to consumer well, because and, of the scale. And historically, I think that the Shenandoah Valley was viewed as well. We're we're one ridge over from the Washington D.C. area, and we don't get the consumer trade and the traffic out here that that somebody on the east slopes of the Blue Ridge would. And, and I think there's some truth to that. If you just look at the number of vineyards and wineries that we have out here, it's growing. But it's been a little bit in a, in a maybe a back eddy compared to the Piedmont region of Virginia. Mm-hmm. But there's actually very good sites here. You're correct. You're, you're in the driest portion of the state where you're sitting right now. The northern Shenandoah Valley is the driest area. What does that mean in terms of overall? You know, we still get 36, 37 inches of rainfall per year versus... 45 or so in maybe southeast Virginia. So it's, it's still a lot of rain when you compare us to an arid region like Central Valley of California or Yakima Valley of Washington. We're pretty wet. It's been remarkable to me, I'm backing up here, but it's been remarkable to me to see what Ankita Ridge has done with Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. This is world quality Pinot Noir they're producing. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, it's in small quantities, 
but it is the wine that I have used in the past when I was in California thinking about coming to Virginia. When I talk to people who are skeptics of Virginia wine and I would open a bottle of Ankita Rich Pinot Noir and pour it for them and they go, that's from Virginia? Yeah. And I yeah. go, yeah, that's from Virginia. Yeah. Is there a potential for that to happen a bit larger for Pinot Noir in this state? You have to really want to grow Pinot Noir. <laughs> you know, and I know, uh, you, I, just I know that you do. Yeah, I think there's potential. Um, you, you're you're going to have to find a good site, and uh, and Kaida Rich did that. It is a small vineyard. I know they produce Chardonnay as well. I've I've been to that site, and um, and they do a good job. I mean, their overall vineyard management is very good. They do have the advantage of of having good relative elevation as well as good absolute elevation. So that puts them into a little bit of a cooler zone than somebody down a thousand feet lower than them. And that, for Pinot Noir, is probably, well, yeah. probably very important. <laughs> what, what about the grape Gamay? True Gamay, Beaujolais. I mean... I don't know if it's really been tried here. They, they put a quarter of an acre in up at Ankita Ridge. And they're on granite, and that's the traditional soil base for the Beaujolais region in France. And I'm thinking to myself, well, Gamay would be interesting... But I don't know the property of Gamay as far as growing the grape itself and how disease-prone it may or may not be. It might be just like all other vinifera, for all I know. Yeah, I, I don't have enough experience with Gamay to, to really say whether it would do well here. I kind of put it into the same category as Pinot Noir and some of these other what I would call somewhat fragile varieties, and, and unfortunately you know, Nebbiola falls into that, Barbera, a Grenache. I love Grenache, but... But it, it does not hold up very well, and we do have some experience with it. It just doesn't hold up very well when we get rains in, in September and, and October before it's harvested. That was sort of the beauty of Petit Mansing. You know, it doesn't produce a Pinot Noir. It's, it's totally a different grape, right. but it, it's, it, it's what we call a wet weather grape. It does reasonably well under the kind of growing conditions that we have, which some, can sometimes include tropical storms and hurricanes coinciding with harvest. We really have to be looking at that as to you know what, what's going to do well here, and particularly with a changeable climate and more intense. Well, that's what I was going to say. As a viticultural scientist, what do you think about climate change? What have you seen, and what are the predictions for Virginia? I'll, I'll start with what I've seen, and, I, and again, I can go back, uh, because I've been in this area my whole life, essentially, I can go back as far as the 60s and say, you know, we used to have pretty cold winters. It was an unusual winter that we could not go out and skate on ponds uh, after shortly after the first of the year. Well, that's pretty much unheard of today. I, I would say since the 80s, we've really gotten to a point where the winters are perceptibly warmer on average. Of course, it's not the averages that affect grape growers. It's extremes. But on average, the winter temperatures have been increasing, particularly after the turn of the century. We just we don't have the even the single degree or single digit temperatures here at the station, for example, that we used to have in the 80s and 90s, huh. and even sub-zero, talking Fahrenheit, but sub-zero right. temperatures that we'd have here at the station. There are other things that be, that can be measured in that we've anecdotally seen uh, advance of bud burst uh, by two weeks or so. Maybe that might be a bit of a stretch, but ten days anyway for a given variety like Chardonnay always used to be April 21st. We could count on that. Now it's, it's earlier than April 21st here at Winchester. We're not necessarily seeing higher 
daytime temperatures, but accumulated heat units, particularly uh, during the night phase of the day, are warm. Are, are warm. We're seeing a warming of nighttime temperatures huh. that can be tabulated and, and summed over time. The other thing that, and this is strictly anecdotal, I've not found good data to, I haven't looked very hard, but I haven't found the data to support this, but um, the intensity of storms seem to be greater, that we're getting, you know, there's there's a lot more moisture being dumped at one time, three-inch rains, four-inch rains, sometimes over a 12 to 24-hour period. And, and that is something that meteorologists and climatologists do talk about. I mean, obviously, warmer air is going to hold more moisture, when it is released, it can be more violent in, in terms of the release of that energy. Same way with winds and tornadoes, tornadic events and, and hurricanes. I mean, those are, again, it's sort of uh, anecdotal, but the frequency of hurricanes. Is, you know. Unfortunately, Virginia has, like last year, we essentially, I don't think we really had any that impacted Virginia. Given the number that we had last year, most of them hit the Gulf Coast. and and didn't really make it up to Virginia other than maybe some, some lingering rains. So we've seen evidence of climate change, and again, when we talk to climatologists, they're saying this is what we can expect in the mid-Atlantic, increased heat and increased wetness. And we're already in a wet, uh, I mean, our climate, in the, in the Köppen classification of climate uh, regions, we're, we're a continental, uh, humid, mm-hmm. subtropical. Oh wow! And people don't like to think about us as being subtropical, but but we are. That's that's how we're classified. It's not tropical; it's subtropical. Well, if there's a way to characterize Virginia, and I know it's a large state and we have different growing regions, but is there a way to characterize what terroir means to Virginia <laughs> in the classic sense of the word, or is that just this euphemism that everybody throws out? Well, yeah, I know that some of your other folks on your podcast have addressed that question and and I would I would address it the same way that it, it's a bit broad when you say you know Virginia how do, how do you define Virginia's terroir if you look at the big drivers of terroir though it's climate it's variety and it's soils those three things are the big issues and and you can do that maybe at the state level at least for climate mm-hmm. and vintage most of our vintages affect are they're, they're the effects of in a given year can be felt throughout the state. It might be a hot, dry year like 2010. It might be a, an extremely wet year like 2018. Those are those are vintage effects which have a make an indelible mark on the wines produced those years. I've tried some of the 2010 wines. You know, they they taste they're they're more comparable to a West Coast wine for a given variety because we were so hot and dry that year. 2018 would see year a lot of people just shifted gears and say, okay, this, we might not make as much red wine this year as, as, as maybe uh, 2019. 2019 was a great year. So um, vintage trumps everything else, really, and in Virginia, that's, that's definitely the case. I, I don't think we're sophisticated enough in our industry here to really say um, with generic sense of the word, you know, how soils affect wine quality. We know that the water holding capacity of the soil is important, the drainage of the soil. We know that certain soils like greenstone and, and granite form more well-structured soils, perhaps, than a, than a heavy clay soil. And that's important from the standpoint of grape growing and, and ultimately wine quality potential. But I would be hard-pressed to say that I could 
give you a wine that was produced on limestone derived soil compared to sandstone derived or granite derived, all other things being equal, and say this is the difference imparted by those soil parent rock materials huh. in Virginia. There, there are other things that blur the lines too. Obviously, we have wineries that might be purchasing fruit from other locations and then blending it, and and then everything goes out the window at that point in terms of trying to say this is the place. You know, it, to to take terroir back to a description of the place where the grapes are grown and the wine is made. I could maybe start to say that with our research vineyard here. But when you try to apply that more broadly to the whole state, or even an AVA, we're in the first AVA of Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley, northern Shenandoah Valley, that's still a big area. And we have here on our property, we have sandstone drive soils, limestone drive soils, and further west, shale drive soils. How does that impact the wine quality? We're learning, but we're, I don't think we're quite there yet. Well, if I hear what you're saying also, we're such a young industry here in Virginia that we don't really have vineyard sites that have been there for decades that we can then subscribe a particular character to the wine that comes from that vineyard. Yeah, I think we're I think we're starting to. When you say if you keep it at decades, then yes, we do have some and, and you've interviewed I mean, what would a couple be, of people. What would be the oldest vinifera vine that you're aware of in Virginia, let's say for instance? There may be some that were planted in the eighties. Possibly the early 90s, you know, and I think of some of our places down in Orange County and Albemarle County, Fauquier County, Linden's got some pretty pretty old vines there. One of the problems with some of those older vines, though, is that they start to pick up some of the some of the infirmaries of age, if you will. <laughs> there's some there's some virus problems like leaf rule that can can impact the vines. There are um, you know fungal wood rotting fungi that can affect the the structure of the vine and lead to um, a deterioration of the vine. Leaf rule has been a really big problem though over the years so that particular virus is a problem because I mean like any virus once the vines are infected you can't eradicate the 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 virus you pull out the vines and plant something different and so we've gotten into that that practice now with some of these older vineyards they realize yeah that used to be a good vineyard but it's no longer a good vineyard it's not making the highest quality wine anymore so we need to plant something different there well that that leads to another question i have i think you've answered so what is the general life expectancy of a virginia vine Mm -hmm. well we can talk about it it's uh it used to be that the IRS would say 25 years. That was the investment period. Okay. <laughs> That's the lifespan of the trellis using standard building materials, uh, pressure-treated wood and steel wire. And that was about what we would expect with, with grapevines, 25 years. So that's, I think that's quite possible to do that. If you have a good site and they're well-managed vines, you do a certain amount of upkeep with replanting now and then. When you have a problem, you know, you lose a vine to this or that, you replant. But uh, 25 years would be Do Do hybrids differ in this regard? That the, the I, no, not really. Pretty much the same? Yeah, not really, yeah. The only thing that they, um, that hybrids, most hybrids would benefit from would be that those occasional really cold winters. The 2013-2014 winter got fairly cold in some parts of the state. Uh, I said after the turn of the century we've seen a warming trend, but we still have some of these winters occasionally that are punctuated by even just one night or two nights is all it takes really to cause damage. So hybrids would have that benefit of being able to maybe weather the cold those cold events better than a vinifera. 
if you were to give me an overall assessment of what you've seen as far as growth and wine quality and wine growing, and where do you think this would be in 2050? Mm-hmm. I mean, are we going to see dramatic improvement, do you think, or are we going to see marginal improvement? I, I think we'll see incremental improvement. If we If we kind of step back on that question a little bit and say, let's take somebody who's been here in the industry for 25 or 30 years. How has their quality improved and, and where will it go from here? They've already improved quite a bit over the years, either by virtue of having different clones, uh, you know, maybe even different varieties, maybe made a fundamental shift in varieties. The canopy management, uh, disease management, all of those routine vineyard practices that we do, we've, we've made incremental improvements to that over the years. We, you know, we, we know more about what impact will have on the fruit and the wine quality potential by doing leaf pulling at a particular time uh, of the season, doing a better job overall with fungal disease management. And insects have always been, you know, they're, they're problematic at times, but uh, they're, they're not that big of an issue. Fungal diseases, though, have been something that we've had to deal with, and we're doing a better job in that regard. So those, I think those incremental improvements will continue. I think that going forward, you know, another 30 years, so as I said earlier, we may not be growing, we may not be focused on the varieties 30 years from now that we are now, and that could improve what we, you know, what we're doing 30 years from now. So that's one audience. Those are the people that have been here for 30 years. The people that are getting in today have this body of knowledge that they they can really get jump-started on. They don't have to go through this whole process of repeating mistakes that others have made and learned from. Uh, I think overall that, that lifts the quality of, of all Virginia wines up dramatically. We just, you know, we're not seeing, typically we're not seeing problem wines that are maybe micro biologically unsound or the fruit was just harvested way too immature or, or, or unripe. You know, we've, we've kind of gotten beyond those learning pains with the new growers. So um, there's still some issues, but but I think overall, I think most, and I would agree that overall the quality has improved. Whatever metric you, you want to use, uh, uh, the wine's going into, you know, getting gold gold medals in competition, the governor's, cup, cup, uh, governor's case wines, I've, I've really been impressed by what they assemble and put together with those. And the wines that I try, I do drink a lot of Virginia wines and, and get to try a lot, but there's 300-some you know, wineries out there. I have not tried them all. <laughs> I, I'm trying my best to catch up with them, but I will tell you my opinion based on everything I've tasted so far, at least 10 to 15%, maybe a bit more, of the 300 or so wineries here in Virginia produce as good a quality of wine is anybody in the world, in my opinion, mm-hmm. quality. Now, obviously, the varietals we talked about in a lot of cases are different right. than some of the mainstream varietals that people are talking about, but just from a pure qualitative level, yeah. I've been really impressed about what's going on here. Now, I I reserve the term great wine for what I call the one per- tenth of one percent of all the wine produced in the world. And then I go to, okay, is it quality? And I think Virginia is right there, mm-hmm. you know, just right there, ready to break out and people to understand it's as good a quality here as anywhere coming from around the world. Yeah, I would agree, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners would would, would agree and, and, and uh, appreciate hearing those comments as well. But uh, 
you know, I've, I tend to focus on the viticultural improvements, but there's a lot that is going on also in the wineries, the whole sorting process with fruit. It's, it's still a challenging environment. It's not an easy walk in the park to grow high-quality fruit here. You know, we have advantages to some people, too. We're, you know, we don't have the water scarcity issues that some places in the world have. That uh, So I think we have to count our blessings. And, and, and it's a double-edged sword, you know. It, we can be quite frustrated by years like 2018. But, but on the other hand, it, it gives us an opportunity to do things maybe that, that, uh, that others don't have. So right. it's good in that regard. Tony, this has been really fascinating. And when I go back to edit, I'm sure I'm going to... A lot of this is going to be really resonate with me, but I appreciate you taking some time today. I'm really glad to know what the Extension Service does and how they support the Virginia wine growing region. It's just another leg of the stool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're just we're one part of it, and uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride, as they say, <laughs> over these last 35 years I've been here. So again, Fred, I appreciate you taking the time to to listen to me and ask no. me questions. Thank you. Well, the afternoon I spent with Tony was everything I imagined it would be straightforward way in which he was able to impart his experience and wisdom was a true pleasure. I now understand why he is held in such high esteem amongst the vintners here in Virginia. And speaking of high esteem, in my next episode, I travel to Glen Manor Vineyards in the northern end of the Shenandoah Valley to interview Jeff White, the winemaker and founder of Glen Manor Vineyards. Jeff is one of the top wine growers in Virginia, and his wines reflect his vineyard along with his early days of learning, winemaking, working for Jim Law at Linden. Stay tuned for this episode. You won't want to miss it. As always, thank you for being a listener. Hit that subscribe button. And if you have any comments or questions, please send them to me at fred at finewineconfidential.com. See you on the other side. at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song Acoustic Shuffle under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show.